Hi, I'm Eric Chaffin, Senior Pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana. Welcome to The Upward Call, our weekly Beach Street message cast. If this is your first time to connect with us, we invite you to discover more at www.beachstreetfbc.org. Beachstreetfbc.org. Thanks so much for joining us. We pray that today's message will inspire and challenge you as God speaks to you through His Word. Well, open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. Philippians 1. We're in part 3 of A Call to Joy, our series in the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at verses 27 through 30 today. And we're talking about the faith of the gospel and how that's played out in times of struggle and opposition. David Lloyd George, a British prime minister in the early 1920s, once said that faith is idle when circumstances are right. Only when they are adverse is one's faith in God exercise. Faith, like muscle, grows strong and supple with exercise. And, and I think the Apostle Paul would have agreed with that. Now, you'll recall that in week one of our study, we found that as sons and daughters adopted into God's family, we enjoy the fellowship of the gospel. And as we saw last week, we are servants in the service of forwarding the gospel. But as we found from Paul's experience in chains, the Christian life is not always wine and roses. It's not always a playground. Sometimes it's a battleground. But as Paul reminds us, the believer whose mind is focused on Christ can have joy even in the midst of battle. So read along with me in our text, Philippians chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul writes just one thing. As citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you that you are standing firm in one spirit in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation, and this is from God. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had, and now hear that I have. So, in verses 27 through 30, how does Paul instruct the Philippian Christians to live their lives? By conducting themselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, not being afraid of opposition, and confident that God has saved them, even though they too will suffer because of the gospel. And that really brings us to the big idea behind the, the study today, that Christians may suffer and struggle, but this is a sign that your faith is real. There are battles to fight in the Christian life, and Paul warns here about the enemies that would attack us. You see, Satan is out to defeat the church, and Christians need to be focused on Christ in order to face him and to fight the good fight of faith. So Paul gives several encouragements here to help the Christian defend the faith of the gospel. And I think we can express those encouragements in three primary thoughts. Thought number one, you must all stand together. You must all stand together. Look at verse 27. As citizens of heaven, 
live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending together for the faith of the gospel. In other words, you are not standing alone. You're all on the same team. How wonderful it is to know that others are standing right with us as we fight the battles of life. There's no substitute for the unity and harmony of the Christian church. You see, Satan is the great divider and destroyer, but Christ is the unifier and builder. Now, there's several things that stand out here in verse 27. First of all, I'd call your attention to a conduct that's worthy. First part of verse 27, Paul says, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Well, Paul's describing a person's life as a citizen. Now, understand that Philippi was a proud Roman colony, fanatically loyal to Rome. They kept the Roman language and customs and affairs and dress. They refused to be influenced by or compromise to the customs or behavior of others. But the church well understood what Paul was saying about their citizenship, that they were citizens of heaven and should keep close ties to Christ regarding their walk and talk and manner. Their conduct was to be becoming of heavenly citizens. Remember, we are ambassadors for Christ, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20. Well, if we're his ambassadors, then let's represent. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, Christians should be known for having the most Christ-like generosity and, and compassion and, and work ethic and, and leadership. We walk in a manner that God can put his stamp of approval on. Uh, in his book, Just Walk Across the Room, Bill Hybel shared a letter from a restaurant employee that said, please let me convey a few things about Christians from a non-Christian waiter's perspective. It's quite well known among white staff that when tables of Christians get seated in your section, it will be anything but a positive experience. Christians are demanding. They tend to stay at tables for a long time. They often try to push literature, and they rarely tip generously. You know, sadly, that's not wrong. I mean, it's, it's well known that a lot of wait staff don't want to serve the after-church crowd because they're rude, they're stingy, but it should be quite the opposite. You know, there's a song that we used to sing a lot when I was a kid. They will know we are Christians by our love. They'll know we are Christians by our love. Just not at Applebee's and Olive Garden and Texas Roadhouse. Uh, folks, we are Christians. The word means little Christ. And as such, we should be Christ-like in everything. We are citizens of heaven, so let's act like it. We are in Christ. But we should be in practice what we are in position with a conduct that's worthy and, get this, a consistent life. Paul says in verse 27, whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you, that you are standing firm. 
See, the church at Philippi was dear to his heart, and he was always glad to hear of their affairs. He wanted them to know that whether he was there or not, he desired to hear good things about the church. As a church that had matured in their faith and no longer needed to be spoon-fed, they had an obligation to continue in the faith with or without Paul. So, he urged a consistent lifestyle that presented an honorable testimony to the Lord. You see, an inconsistent, wavering, wishy-washy Christian is a Christian that lacks influence in the world around us. Christ is faithful and true. He doesn't waver. Well, as his representatives, we shouldn't either. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, that we are to be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So a conduct that's worthy, a consistent life, and here's another one, a cooperative spirit. He also says in verse 27, standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. Well, in addition to this plea for consistency, Paul pleads for cooperation. He wants to hear that they are standing fast with the common spirit of unity and cooperation. See, the need for unity is dealt with a lot in Paul's letters. The early church struggled with internal opposition, and you know what? That continues today. Church, we'll never achieve what the Lord desires of us if we aren't working together. Each of us has different gifts, spiritual gifts, talents, abilities. It takes all of us working together, doing our part to be successful for the Lord. Church, Each of you has much to contribute, and you are certainly needed as we present a united front. You see, we Christians face a common foe, so we shouldn't ever fight each other, but unite against the enemy. As pastor of Beach Street First Baptist Church in Texarkana, I'm reminded that the church in the summer of 2022 voted to combine two services into one. Now, the primary motive for that was was oneness. Not having multiple tribes under one roof, but one. One mind, one heart, one purpose. It's reminiscent of what Paul said in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Now, as a church, we're still working to achieve that goal. You see, we still have some folks that like their preaching this way or their small group ministry that way or their music preferences a certain way or children's ministry done their way. But, you know, if you're looking to have everything that happens at church done exactly your way, you're going to be waiting a long time. Or, like a lot of church-hopping consumer Christians, you'll go look for it in another church, only to find that a church that's perfectly suited to your tastes doesn't exist. So what is it then 
that should truly unite us in one spirit and one accord. Well, it's not being at a church that caters to our specific tastes. It's our common love for Jesus, our commitment to the to him and and to the message of the gospel. You're all on the same team, Paul is telling us. That means a conduct that, that's worthy, a, a consistent life, a cooperative spirit. And here's another one, a contention for the faith, contending together for the faith of the gospel. Now, that phrase, contending together, it, uh, it carries the idea of an athletic contest. It pictures a team working together to overcome the opponent in victory. Now, we as ambassadors must work together as a team, each serving with the ability that God has given us. You see, we face a determined adversary, so the church needs all of its members always working together. Okay, but what does it mean to contend for the faith of the gospel? Well, for starters, what is it? Well, the faith of the gospel is simply that body of divine truth given to the church. It's the Christian faith based on the good news of Jesus. Now, in the New Testament, you'll find several echoes of Paul's call to contend for the faith. For example, Jude 3 says to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Paul charges Timothy to fight the good fight of faith as a soldier of God in pursuit of holy living and persistent service and defending the gospel. That passage is actually 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 11 through 21. And of course, here, Paul urges the Philippians to be contending together for the faith of the gospel. Fight earnestly for the faith. Contend, strive, some of your English translations will say. In other words, champion the divine truth of the gospel. Now, the fact that Christ will return one day reminds us that we can live triumphantly today, which leads us to the next big thought, really. Yes, number one, you must all stand together, but number two, you will all stand in triumph. Look at verse 28. Not being frightened in any way by your opponents. This is a sign of destruction for them, but of your salvation. And this is from God. So in other words, you're on the winning side. Your salvation is secured. Your eternal destination has been set. I mean, you've read the end of the book, right? You know that when the proverbial dust is settled, when the final battle of good and evil is waged, one victor will triumph, and his name is Jesus Christ, and we will stand victorious with him. You see, the war has already been won, but there are battles still left to fight. The enemy knows he's losing and that you're winning. And so in light of that, several things I want to point out. First of all, a determination to stand. First part of verse 28, he says, not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Now, that Greek word that Paul uses for frightened 
it it pictures a horse shying away from battle. Okay, so don't run from the battle. Now, to be sure, nobody blindly runs into a fight, but then no true believer should deliberately avoid facing the enemy. Okay, but what enemy are we talking about here in Philippians 1? Well, with regard to the church at Philippi, it's primarily external foes. Now, religiously speaking, now, given that Philippi was a typical Roman colony, there were a large number of pagan gods worshipped there. Uh, the imperial cult likely, likely existed there. That's the Roman religion in which the emperor was worshipped as a god. So whether their attacks would come from Romans pressuring Christians to worship the emperor or from other pagan enemies or whether persecution from the Jewish community who viewed Christianity as a cult they usually employed the same tactics. In Discipleship is Serious Business, Rubel Shelley wrote this, Recruitment posters for our country's armed forces may emphasize seeing the world or getting financial help with college, but the harsh truth is that enlistment in the military carries serious risks. The crew and families of the USS Cole were reminded of that on October 12, 2000, when terrorists caused the deaths of 17 and injured dozens more while the ship was refueling in Yemen. Likewise, dare we present the Christian faith like a recruitment poster that talks about the perks of being a church member without letting people know that one's life is on the line for following Christ? Well, the answer is no, we don't because the struggle is real. But ultimately, who's really pulling the strings behind these opponents in Philippi? Well, who else could it be? Satan. He was using these different opponents to attack the church in the first century, and he's still attacking Christ's church today. And I think that's why Paul told the church at Corinth, 2 Corinthians 10, 4 through 5, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but are powerful through God for the demolition of strongholds. We demolish arguments and every proud thing that is raised up against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, Satan is the one behind every argument Every lie, every mockery of Christ behind every worldview that proudly raises itself up against the knowledge of God. So the need for unity and courage among the believers was crucial in the then and there, and it's vital in the here and now. So why do we not have to be afraid of our opponents? Well, it's simple because the Lord is with us. God told the Israelites, be strong and courageous. Don't be terrified or afraid of them. For the Lord your God is the one who will go with you. He will not leave you or abandon you. That's Deuteronomy 31.6. And the psalmist said in Psalm 118.6 that the Lord is for me. I will not be afraid. What can a mere mortal do to me? 
Now, we not only see that there should be a determination to stand, but in verse 28, we also clearly see there's another reason that we don't have to fear our opponents, and that's a destruction sign. As Paul said in verse 27, you know, we should be standing firm in one spirit, in one accord. But you see, the unity and faith of the believers is an omen. The courageous conduct of the Philippian Christians is evidence of the spiritual ruin of their adversaries. It's them giving the enemy notice that he's going to lose. Now, later in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, I have often told you and now say again with tears that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul states here in verse 28 that this is a sign of destruction for them. So the courage of Christians in the face of opposition declares to the enemies of the cross that God will repay these enemies for the persecution of his church. The unity of Christ's church is an omen of destruction to those who fight against God. Now, additionally, the courageous conduct of the Philippian believers is not only evidence of the spiritual ruin of their adversaries, but it's proof of their own eternal safety. You see, it serves not only as a destruction sign, but also as a designation of salvation. Our courage under attack, our willingness to stand united against our foe is a declaration to him, to the enemy, a message of salvation in Jesus. Our response to attacks proves that we're saved. Verse 28 says it's a sign of your salvation. And this is from God. See, in verse 29, Paul continues, For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf to believe in him. You see, salvation is a gift that's ours. Now, the word for granted there is karitsomai, meaning to grant graciously, to give freely as a favor. Its root word is karis, meaning grace. So it's a gift of grace. So if our enemies want proof that what Christ has freely given us is real, our unity and courage is all the proof they'll need. It's an outward demonstration of an inward transformation that God has done and continues to do in us daily. In Journey to Adelphos, uh, Jeff Gorsuch wrote this. He said, the question to ask at the end of life's race is not so much, what have I accomplished, but whom have I loved and how courageously? Well, the answer to whom have I loved is Christ. May we always fight to keep him first place in our lives because that's the secret of joy. Yes, the Christian life is a race that we run. It's a marathon, not a sprint. But it's also warfare against a sinister foe who wants to steal your joy. But understand this. Satan is a defeated foe. And while he's going down kicking and streaming, he is going down. And knowing that he's the loser, 
knowing that Christ is the victor, and knowing that God will never let us go, gives us the courage to stand together, to all stand in triumph. Now, those are the two first big thoughts in our study today, but but there's another reason that we'll need God-given courage, because as Paul tells them, number three, you will all suffer trouble. Look at verse 29. For it has been granted to you on Christ's behalf, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him. Okay, so what did what did Paul mean by that? Well, first of all, surprisingly, he means that our suffering is a gift. See, there's no escaping what Paul is saying to us. Yes, our salvation is a gift, but so is our suffering. What? Suffering? A gift? Yeah. It's a privilege, Paul says. We suffer for his sake, for Christ. If we're suffering for ourselves, it would be no privilege, but... If we're suffering for and with Christ, it is a high and holy honor. After all, he suffered for us, and our willingness to suffer for him is the very least we can do to show our love to him. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German theologian who stood firm against the Nazi regime in his home country, and he was imprisoned and executed for it. But in a letter to his sister, Sabine, Bonhoeffer wrote, It is good to learn early enough that suffering and God are not a contradiction, but rather a unity. For the idea that God himself is suffering is one that has always been one of the most convincing teachings of Christianity. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness, and to find God in this way gives peace and rest, and a strong and courageous heart. Church, suffering is nothing new to the Christian experience. Jesus, God the Son, suffered on our behalf. Many of his followers were martyred for their faith. And Christians in other parts of the world are still being martyred for their faith today. Paul knew that if a person wanted to follow Jesus, that he or she would have to count the cost. As Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. See, the reality is that we not only believe in Christ, but sometimes we suffer for Christ. And Paul called this the fellowship of Christ's sufferings in Philippians 3 verse 10. It's a gift because it's just one more way that we are able to relate to Christ, to appreciate the suffering that he endured on our behalf. There were actually persecuted Christians in the second century, believe it or not, who sought out suffering, even martyrdom, because they wanted to be more like Christ. But for some reason, A lot of believers, especially new believers, have the idea that trusting Christ means life's a piece of cake, smooth sailing, no conflict, no struggle. Folks, the Christian life is not for wimps. It's not easy. If it is, you're probably not doing it right. You see, being 
in Christ doesn't mean the end of your battles. In reality, it means the beginning of new battles. But what will that battle look like? Well, that could be any number of things. Being marginalized by society as it tries to stifle your freedom of speech, ridicule at school, being passed over for a promotion at work because of your faith, being the victim of slander, even violence. I mean, in some parts of the world, it's any and all of these. But remember what Jesus said to his disciples. You will have suffering in this world. Be courageous. I have conquered the world. That's John 16:33. So Paul tells the church at Philippi that our suffering is a gift. And he tells them also our struggle is the same. Verse 30, he says, you are engaged in the same struggle that you saw I had and now hear that I have. So Paul has equated his own suffering to the suffering of the Philippians. Their suffering and his are part of the same struggle to proclaim the gospel. A gospel that, as we learned last week, Paul was more concerned about advancing than he was about his own imprisonment. Now, as we've already discussed, today Christians around the world are ultimately doing spiritual combat with the same enemy, the same enemy that Paul faced, that the church at Philippi faced. Yet through it all, like Paul, we can have joy when our minds are focused solely on Christ Jesus. Yes, there will be opposition to be faced. Yes, there will be struggles, even suffering, which brings us full circle to the big idea Christians may suffer and struggle, but this is a sign that your faith is real. Church, whatever happens, let's live our faith to the fullest. Let's always act like Christians, little Christs. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ, Paul says in verse 27. So, so far in a call to joy in our study in Philippians, chapter 1 here, we've seen that in the midst of trouble, Paul showed quiet confidence and inner joy, and he was confident that the Philippians would continue in their Christian walk. We see that in verse 6. He was rejoicing that his trials had given the believers in Rome new confidence. We saw that in verse 14. And he was confident that he would come through these trials and be restored to his friends again. That's in verse 25. See, this is the blessing of the mind that is focused squarely on Christ, a joyful confidence in God, knowing that he is firmly in control of all of our circumstances. Paul a joyful prisoner in chains, had a powerful word for us today in verses 27 through 30. But how do we put his words into action? How do we live it out? Well, let me suggest some, some steps that you can take to bring that to fruition. Okay, first of all, be unfailing. Be unfailing. Consistently walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. And if you're not, 
Pray and ask God to show you areas of your life that need to be corrected. So be unfailing. Here's the second one. Be unified. Be unified. Abandon petty differences. Work out conflict the way brothers and sisters in Christ should. Folks, we have much too big a foe to face without fighting amongst ourselves. So let's have a cooperative spirit. Be unfailing. Be unified. Be useful. Serve the body of Christ. You know, instead of being a consumer, be a contributor. Be the hands and feet of Jesus to both the church and to the world. Join arm in arm with other Christians as we work together to advance the gospel of Jesus. So be useful. And here's the final one. Be unafraid. Be unafraid. Remember that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's uh, Romans 8, 37. Embrace the courage, the kind of courage that only God can give. Now, while there's still battles to fight, remember that Jesus has won the war. He defeated sin and death and hell through his death and resurrection. And to be unafraid, develop relationships with other Christians who can encourage you when opposition arises or struggles come. Church, we know how the story ends. Jesus wins. But for those listening, I ask, do you know if you're going to be standing victorious with him? See, 2 Timothy 2.12 says that believers will one day reign with him. But it's hard to celebrate victory if you're mired in slavery to sin. But you can be free of that. Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and mine that we might live victorious in this life and the next. And all you have to do is to place your trust in him and the victory that he's already won. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you'd like to have a personal relationship with God, it's pretty simple. It's repent, believe, and receive. We acknowledge that we're all sinners who fall short, and we repent. That word means to change your mind about the way you've been living. Then you choose to believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for you. And you receive, by faith, God's gift of forgiveness, salvation, and eternal life. If you don't have a church home, we'd love to have you join us at Beach Street. Small group Bible study begins at 9.30 on Sundays, followed by worship at 10.45. There's a midweek Bible study on Wednesdays at 6. You'll find us at the corner of 6th and Beach Street in downtown Texarkana. For more info, visit our website at beachstreetfbc.org.